Hi, listeners. Stick around until the end of the episode to hear a trailer for our upcoming season of Rediscovering. And be sure to follow that podcast wherever you listen. Season 3 of Rediscovering, Killed Through the Border Fence, coming soon. The news reports are morbid. Bodies are being discovered in the newly visible muck of Lake Mead. But perhaps the most terrifying thing about the water situation involving the Colorado River is not the past. It's the future for all of us. The water is drying up. At the beginning of August, the U.S. Interior Department announced a water shortage that will trigger cuts in the water supply in Arizona and other parts of the Southwest. The United Nations Environmental Program said Lake Powell and Lake Mead have reached dangerously low levels. The Federal Bureau of Reclamation, which oversees the nation's water projects, gave the seven states and 30 tribes that use the Colorado River eight weeks to come up with a plan to conserve more water. The goal was to conserve an extra two to four million acre feet of water, thereby stabilizing the rapidly dwindling reservoirs. However, no plan was reached and the clock keeps ticking. Arizona has already been fiercely conserving water for some time, but we share the Colorado River with California, Wyoming, Utah, Nevada, Colorado, and New Mexico, as well as 30 federally recognized tribes. This doesn't take into account Mexico, which also uses the river as a water supply. The future of Arizona's water hangs in the balance as Colorado River stakeholders duke it out on who gets the lion's share of the water. You are listening to The Gaggle, a podcast by the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. Each week, we sit down with reporters, experts, and special guests to keep you fully informed on the state's political news. I'm Ron Hansen. I cover national politics for the Arizona Republic. In today's episode, we're talking about an issue many of you have sent our way, Arizona's water crisis. How bad is it? And what are the government and policy leaders doing about it? Today we'll hear from two guests, the first of which is our very own in-house water expert, Brandon Loomis. Brandon, welcome to The Gaggle. Well, thank you for having me, but let's be careful with the word expert. <laughs> it's, uh, I'm sure I'll come out of this with more questions than I'm able to answer, and that's the, the thing with water. I'm a, let's call me a water student. <laughs> for myself as well, I am learning quite a bit, and I must say it's, it's a, a fascinating and terrifying education. Let's start with a level check here. Just how dire is Arizona's water situation right now? Arizona gets about a third of its water from the Colorado River, uh, shares it with other states throughout the course of the river. And already this year, Arizona has had to cut back substantially on what it takes. And 
primarily that hardship has fallen on farmers in central Arizona. The water that goes through the central Arizona Project Canal to Phoenix and Tucson to deliver water to cities also delivers to farms. And so farmers in Pinal County primarily have had to stop using that water this year. So for them, it's dire today. For those of us who live in the cities, it's hard to say when, when we get to the point where we're actually going to have hardship when you're trying to use water at home. In Phoenix, I think about 40% of our water comes from the Colorado River. But that's not necessarily water we're using today. Some of that water is we're storing it in the ground for when times get tough and we want to use it later. The rest of it comes from the ground or from uh, the Salt and Verde Rivers. So we have more of a buffer, but time is obviously growing shorter as Lake Mead plunges, basically, and the whole Southwest has to deal with the possibility that the water wouldn't even flow out of Lake Mead in the future. So speaking of some of these more dire circumstances, you've been traveling, you looked at Lake Powell recently. What did it look like? What, what's the takeaway? Well, it depends on where you are on the lake and what, what you want from the lake. If you're a boater, like we've had for so many years, for decades now, people enjoy houseboating and water skiing and camping. Things have gotten weird. The boat ramps have, a lot of them gone dry. If you're wanting to put a houseboat on the lake or take it out for maintenance, there are only two options right now. And both of those only exist uh, or, or only reach the water right now because the National Park Service has been adding concrete to them to make them go deeper. Things are also weird from an environmental standpoint. You know, where the Colorado River enters Lake Powell on the upper end, there's a lot of rafting traffic out of Moab, Utah. And the ramp there that people used to use has long since been dry. The sort of makeshift one that they've been using is steep and arguably dangerous to try and get trucks on there to, to unload these things. And we flew over this part of the lake a few weeks ago. And from the air, it's very strange looking. It's like the area that used to be covered by the upper end of Lake Powell is now, I mean, it has the appearance of a glacier, like a mud glacier where crevasses in the mud are like calving away from the sides of the sandstone where this mud has been, the sediment has been building up for several decades and now is sort of collapsing on itself and starting to move downstream. Really interesting looking. And then in the side canyons, there are all these areas that when Lake Powell was flooded, a lot of people who loved this remote canyon country were heartbroken. Now some of the things that they loved are starting to come back. We went to Cathedral in the Desert, which is this grotto that's basically a combination of a covered auditorium or band shell, you know, with a waterfall falling off of it. It's very cool. It was underwater. Now it's back. So some people are rejoicing. But as Lake Powell continues to decline, it causes problems downstream, of course, trying to keep Lake Mead full for our water uses. You've referenced Utah and some of the other jurisdictions around us. We have always lived under this sort of uh, strange cooperative agreement here in the Southwest for how to parse the Colorado River and its supply that we depend on so much. The talks between the river basin states and the tribes that use the Colorado have not yet settled on any action plan that seems to be the appropriate way forward under the current circumstances. They had two months to come up with ways to conserve two to four million acre feet of water 
was that timeline unreasonable from the start? And where do we go from here? Well, in retrospect, it sure looks unreasonable because the states among themselves weren't able to reach an agreement that would save that much water. And from the start, it seemed unlikely because in the last five to 10 years, we haven't been able to save that much water. And we've been making progress between the states. You know, Arizona has been working with California and Nevada to compensate some people and, and keep their water in Lake Mead, but they haven't saved two to four million acre feet a year. And so to try and do that all in two months was obviously difficult and it didn't happen. The collaboration that's been going on between the states, there seems to be renewed tension now because of this. You know, Arizona's officials are saying, you know, we can't do this alone. We are kind of bearing the brunt so far due to rules that were put in place before all this water, um, all these water losses happened. But, you know, we kind of need California to get on board is their point and, and to start reducing their take as well, which they've not been required to so far. Give our listeners a sense of how this water is divvied up at this point. I presume there is uh, concern that Las Vegas is sucking the Colorado River dry or that Los Angeles is much worse for uh, its consumption habits than Arizona. How does any part of this system go to these various jurisdictions? Invariably, when I write about this subject, I will hear from people saying, how can Las Vegas continue having these fountains and continue growing and so on, as if Las Vegas is the problem. And Las Vegas takes a very small share of the river and puts a lot of it back into Lake Mead um, after it's done with it. So Las Vegas, Los Angeles, Phoenix, we're all using water out of the Colorado River. But if we gave all of our shares back, that wouldn't solve the problem because roughly two thirds of the water is going to agriculture. The other thing I should say is that in urban areas over the years and decades per capita use is declining. In some cases, in some years, you'll find that the actual overall use by these cities has declined, which helps to make room for growth that has continued. But the big share of the water is on the farms. And so the real question is like, how do we compensate farmers to use less if that's the way we want to go? Or how do we improve their efficiency in a way that keeps the river flowing, but ideally doesn't destroy the rural agricultural industry and, and frankly, the food that we all eat? The lower Colorado is a major supplier of vegetables and, and especially uh, important in the winter when no one else can grow lettuce and greens and so on. From one perspective, farms would be where the opportunity is. And from their perspective, you often hear that they feel like they have a target on their backs. So agriculture can be sort of an umbrella term for a lot of different things. Give us a sense of what kinds of crops or livestock are dependent on the Colorado here in the Southwest. In Arizona and Colorado, the thing that you hear a lot about is the lettuce or the greens, the broccoli. There's, of course, some cotton growth, too, that people will complain about because that's a pretty water-intensive crop. But it really runs the spectrum of all kinds of vegetables. The Imperial Valley Irrigation District in California, which is you know across the river from Yuma, that's the largest single user on the entire Colorado River by a mile. And they grow just about everything. We were over there earlier this year on some of the farms, and you know you're harvesting onions, which become dehydrated. Kind of interesting that the river irrigates onions, which become dehydrated and then become onion powder, which I, I can't remember which 
place it's in, but I, they told me that it's it's in one of the top five, I think, of seasonings in the world, which you wouldn't have guessed. But I guess there's a lot of soup that requires onion powder. We went through a little community over there that had signs up saying that it was the carrot capital of the world. There are melons. There's almost anything that you can find in the grocery store. There are artichokes. It's really broad-based in the lower basin along the river and near the river. In the upper basin and in the lower basin, there's a lot of alfalfa. A lot of the water goes to grow forage, which is then uh, eaten by livestock. So it supports the livestock industry. And in the upper basin, that's really the big thing because their weather is less conducive to, to growing some of the things that we can grow down here. So it sounds like there's a lot of important products being grown here in the lower part of the basin. Given that, it seems that agriculture will always be a difficult part of any reforms to the water consumption that need to happen. What can the average urban Arizonan, especially here in the Phoenix area, do to start making a difference with their water consumption? The first thing and most important thing is just to start thinking about water. We've been so long in this society where if you live in a city, you turn on the tap and there it is. You don't have to worry about it. You know, you individually are not going to solve the problem. But if you want to be part of the solution, you just have to think about how you're using water. This morning, I was walking my dog in my neighborhood in Phoenix, and I noticed somebody had trimmed their hedges. And behind it, there was a patch of grass, about 25 by 30 maybe, which was essentially invisible from the street. But it was being watered at that moment. And there was only one little opening in the hedge, which would allow you to get in there with a lawnmower. So the question is, what's that grass for? It's not for me to judge whether they're using their water appropriately, but if, if, if I were that homeowner, I might think to myself, what's, what's the value of that grass and how much water am I putting on it? That sort of thing. One of the complicating factors in trying to conserve water is among the shareholders are the sovereign tribal nations that are found here in Arizona and the Southwest. How are they using the water and how cooperative have they been in trying to formulate sustainable water policy? There's a mix of realities for tribes throughout the region. Some of them have established water rights that have, you know, what they call a water settlement. For instance, the Gila River uh, Indian community on the edge of Metro Phoenix has an established right, a very significant one, to Colorado River water. It's, it's meant to replace water that they lost when settlers basically diverted the Gila River upstream of them. So they have a great deal of water that they use for agriculture. They also store some of it in the ground, just like cities around here have done or the state has done. And they've been a big part of the efforts to date to keep Lake Mead propped up because, you know, they've worked with the state say, saying, okay, well, water that we might have taken this year, we'll, we'll leave in Lake Mead for now. As things have started to get a little bit dicey recently on whether they're going to be able to actually save Lake Mead's levels from fall, falling further, they're becoming a little bit more like we, we can't do this alone. And like maybe we should just take our water and put it in the ground so that we can use it later. They're at one end of the spectrum where they have an established water right and they're working through the process with the states right now. Other tribes don't have their settlements secured. The Navajo is, is an example of that. The Navajo Nation is in three states. The largest portion of, it, of the reservation is in Arizona, but they're also in Utah and New Mexico. And that portion is in what we call the upper basin of the Colorado. They do have settlements in those states for the portion of water that they can take from there. But the lower basin 
where most of their land and population is, we don't know what they're going to be entitled to when all is said and done. And so if the rest of us in the Colorado River Basin who rely on this water are already facing difficulties keeping the supply sustainable, well, once we decide how much these tribes are entitled to, that, that's another complication. You could also say it's another opportunity because some of these tribes likely will turn around and lease some of that water to, to people who need it. But it's definitely a complication in trying to figure out where we go from here. Brandon, thank you for joining us on The Gaggle today. If people want to follow your work, where can they find you on Twitter? It's just my name, at Brandon Loomis. B-R-A-N-D-O-N-L-O-O-M-I-S, altogether. Listeners, we're going to take a brief break now. Gaggle listeners, producer Kaylee Monahan here. Do you have questions about Arizona's political landscape? Maybe you're new to the Valley and want a better understanding of the main players in our state. We want to hear from you. Leave us a voicemail at 602-444-0804. That's 602-444-0804. You can also email us your questions to thegaggle at arizonarepublic.com. And don't forget to download the AZ Central app to stay up to date on all the news in our state. Now back to the episode. Joining us remotely to discuss what the state can do is Sarah Porter, director of the Kyle Center for Water Policy at Arizona State University. Sarah, thanks for taking time. Good to be here with you today. So give it to us straight, Sarah. How bad is the water situation in Arizona and the Southwest more broadly at this point? In Arizona and other parts of the Southwest, we have diverse sources of supply, but the Colorado River is a significant source of supply. Historically, it's been 40% or so of Arizona's water supply, and that is the water supply that's currently in trouble. We've been trying to take steps for years to take actions to help the levels of the big reservoirs that hold the water for the lower basin. And that would be Lake Powell and Lake Mead. And I'm sorry to get technical, but the lower basin is California, Nevada, Arizona, and Mexico. And those reservoirs, their levels have been declining and declining in spite of significant actions that the seven basin states have taken, in particular Arizona. So this year is the first ever year, 2022, of a shortage being declared on the Colorado River. And Arizona took a cut of 512,000 acre feet of water, which is a substantial cut. This is all a cut to the water that's delivered to central Arizona. And it's close to about a third of the Colorado River water that has been delivered historically to central Arizona. And even the big cuts and all the actions that the states have taken have not paid off. And we're looking at even bigger cuts in 2023. 
Is there any plausible way out of this just from heavier rains or a good winter or two in Colorado? Will will we all be back to normal again or close enough? How dire is this right now based on the long-term weather patterns we've seen and, and what we are likely to see in the near term? It would take a few years of biblically great snowpack in the upper Rockies to restore, and I mean biblically, I mean unprecedented, to restore the reservoirs without significant conservation measures. What we've seen in the last couple of years is average snowpack or near average snowpack and way below average flows. So two years ago, we had 96% of average snowpack and the flows were something like 35% of average. This last year, it was a little better. We had upper 90s percent of snowpack, but flows in the 60th percentile. So this points to changes in the basin to the hotter, drier conditions that mean that even though the snow may fall in the normal way, it doesn't melt down into uh, water that winds up as flows in the rivers. So the way we've been dealing with the Colorado River historically, and by historically, I really am referring to the 1922 Colorado Compact um, and then all of the agreements thereafter. We agreed in 1922, we meaning seven basin states, that the average production of flows in the Colorado River would be 15 million acre feet. And now uh, hydrologists and climate scientists are saying, we need to adjust downward to something like 12 maybe 13 million acre feet. So we have to have a new normal where we have a long-term reduction in how much water we take out of the Colorado River every year. And if, if we don't do that, those reservoirs will crash. They'll get to the point where they won't deliver hydropower or water anymore. You referenced these agreements. These are multinational. These are multi-state within the U.S., Give us a sense of the stakeholders involved in this and, and what role they can play. Let's start with the Arizona legislature, for example. What role can they play in Arizona trying to manage these new reduced water rates? Is this just handled by federal judges and Congress, or, or does the state have any meaningful role? It is a hodgepodge of different stakeholders with different levels of influence and control. But let's start with the Arizona State Legislature. Of the seven Colorado River sharing states, only Arizona has a statute that requires legislative approval for changes in the Colorado Compact. So probably you and many listeners remember that Arizona got over the finish line with the drought contingency plan in 2019, and that was kind of the last emergency measure well, it wasn't even the last one. We took another one um, that was more voluntary last year, but more challenging in some respects in Arizona because we require legislative approval, just like any other law. In other respects, it makes it better for Arizona because it ensures that a, a lot of work is done to get all of the Arizona, Colorado River stakeholders aligned before we sign off on the contract. And in other states, it's up to the entitlement holder. So I'll give you an example. 
of Imperial Irrigation and District in California. They are the single largest Colorado River entitlement holder with an entitlement of 3.1 million acre feet. Very powerful in that they have a large allocation of Colorado River water. After the DCP was signed by seven states and there was a related treaty with Mexico, Imperial said, we're not going to go along with it. And that didn't make the deal fall apart, but it made made it harder to implement DCP, you know, and it underscores the need for all of the stakeholders to be brought on board. In Arizona, they're all brought on board because our legislature has an important role in making sure that we can get to agreement on how Arizona is going to participate in these measures. What role does Congress play, not just legally in terms of having some responsibilities here, but is there anything that is on the horizon that appears to be uh, anything that could be useful in trying to better manage our water resources, either by bringing in new resources altogether or new ways of managing that which we already have? How does Congress factor into this? Congress does have an opportunity to have a really important role. And just a few weeks ago, for example, Senator Cinema took the lead in having a provision included in the Inflation Reduction Act that allocated $4 billion for mitigation actions in the Colorado River. So there was just an opportunity where Senator Cinema understood that maybe some money could help. We have yet to see whether it will or, or what will happen with that, but there are lots of other opportunities where members of Congress and particularly the delegations that have Colorado River water users can either through funding or through facilitating new types of partnerships, and even um, not so many now, but there used to be more funding infrastructure that leads to better water efficiency that can in the long term result in more water being left in the system. So there's definitely a big role. And I would say that it particularly comes down to a creative delegation, the delegation proactively looking for ways that the federal government can be a helpful partner in solving the Colorado River challenges that we're currently facing. I will put you on the spot with that last assertion of yours. Do you think that we presently have a delegation that understands the seriousness of Arizona's water conditions right now and its near-term future? I think our delegation does because they're hearing it. They're hearing it all the time from the state's water managers, and I'm hearing from them. I'm having um, individual members of the delegation or their staff reach out to me. And Ron, that doesn't stop with with our congressional delegation. It's true also from members of the Corporation Commission, uh, members of the legislature. It seems to me that there is more awareness this year, I'd say over this last year, of the serious challenges on the Colorado River than I've ever seen. This is obviously a very complex situation involving a lot of different shareholders, a lot of different laws, and just uh, an unpredictable environmental situation that that seems to be going in the wrong direction. Is the simplest fact that we should all be absorbing here is that we have to find a way to get other water resources? Or is the Colorado realistically a source that can provide what Arizona's needs will be for, for the foreseeable future? 
Well, back to our diverse supply. We in central Arizona, for example, in the greater Phoenix area, we have a, a fairly robust in-state surface waters resource in the Salt Verde system that SRP manages. We have groundwater that's managed according to what I would call a cap and trade system where we are striving to reach sustainability, um, not taking out more groundwater than is replenished. And then an increasingly important supply of water is reclaimed water. Cities in central Arizona are recycling about 93% of the water that enters the waste treatment system. So that's an increasingly important supply. The Colorado River has been an, another important supply, both for Western Arizona and Central Arizona. And as it diminishes, the water users are going to be looking to other sources of supply. Cities have many tools for dealing with shortage on the Colorado River. For one thing, they have been storing groundwater for years and years and years for this very day. So they can fall back on their groundwater supplies at least for, for many years as a bridge. Another tool that they have is conservation. There's lots of room, we all know from our own lives and, and driving around, for people to reduce water consumption. Can be commercial, can be residential. There's some give right now. And as we reduce our, especially our outside water consumption permanently, not by rationing for the short term, but permanently, we enable the water provider to use those conserved supply for more customers or to stretch those supplies. There's also more opportunity for using reclaimed water for higher uses. Some cities are looking into the future of where they take that water that comes out of the treatment system as class A effluent, and they send it to the drinking water plant and treat it all the way up to potable drinking water. So those are just some of the tools conservation, water reclaiming, and then finally, bringing in new supplies, that is an opportunity for cities. And there are quite a few, way short of ocean desal, that I expect to see happen in the next five to 10 years. Those water supplies are all going to be part of what cities turn to as we move into a future of less Colorado River water. By the same token, cities have been discounting the lower priority Colorado River supplies for some time. They've expected a shortage, so they've avoided relying on lower priority supplies. And, and I guess I should take a moment and explain. In the case of surface water systems, water from rivers, users typically have a priority, like from senior most to junior most, so that in a time of shortage, you know who gets cut first. This is just a sort of uh, long-term economic certainty kind of rule. And cities tend to have some of the highest priority entitlements. Some cities also have lower priority supplies, and they've been discounting those lower priority supplies, knowing that they would be likely to be cut. So that's the outlook for cities. The outlook for farming is very different. Agriculture has relied largely on Colorado River supplies mainly in Pinal County, where those farmers used CAP supplies, and also in Western Arizona. Any water supply development project that's on the books now, apart from drilling wells and using groundwater, 
any of these other projects, that the cost of the water is very likely going to be prohibitively expensive for agriculture. So while new water supply projects are a solution for cities, and they will take advantage of them when they need them, when conservation and reclaiming are not enough, new water supplies will not be a solution for agriculture because they're just too expensive. Given the reality of the near-term water supply that you're expecting and the people who are involved in trying to manage this at this moment, how serious will cutbacks that are being ordered at this point be in the average Arizonan's life? Are we going to just all see our yards turn to dust? Are we going to have to fill in our pools? What is it that Arizonans should expect? Well, your average Arizonan is a person who lives in a city, Phoenix, Tucson, Central Arizona cities. And we as urban dwellers in Central Arizona will probably not see drastic reductions in the water supply that's available for us residentially. But instead, what we will see is encouragement to be using less. The conservation messages coming out of cities have already been stepped up somewhat. You know, almost every city has declared that it's in stage one of their drought plan. They may move to stage two. They may begin to push out programs to get people to retire those thirsty lawns. I don't expect that we'll see drastic cuts that mean your pool goes dry and your yard turns brown, but you will be encouraged to cover your pool and you'll be encouraged to think about whether uh, your lawn is so important that you you couldn't um, do something different with it. It's going to be different again for agriculture. Central Arizona Ag experienced the cut the Colorado River cut for 2022, and they've reduced the amount of land in production as well as turned to other water supplies. And the long-term plan uh, for Pinal County is to reduce the total amount of land that's farmed and also turn to groundwater to water their crops. And those farmers will acknowledge, as well as any water manager, that it's not desirable to mine away groundwater supplies, because that means that in the future, there isn't a supply of water available for that land. I think it's really important for people to understand that the shortage that's been declared officially for 2023 is a shortage that is essentially agreed to under the DCP. Different levels of cuts are agreed to should Lake Mead be projected to reach certain levels by January. What we know very clearly is that this cut that's been declared for 2023 isn't enough. And so in June, the commissioner of the Bureau of Reclamation, the federal agency that manages the Colorado River, in Senate testimony, the commissioner said the Colorado River sharing states have to find a way to cut two to four million acre feet or leave two to four million acre feet in the system in 2023. So it took us three or four years to get to DCP, but she gave us two months to get to a two to four million acre foot cut, which is unprecedented. Remember the whole system produces or is allocated out of the whole system is 15 million acre feet of water. 
it wasn't possible for the states to come to consensus on a two to four million acre foot cut in uh, two months time. I think some good work was done by the states in laying out their positions. And there was some good work done, I would say, by different stakeholders and particularly Yuma farmers who have a proposal to reduce their water orders over four years to leave a significant amount of water in the system. But we who really pay a lot of attention to all of this, we're expecting that by the end of the two month deadline on August 15th or 16th, we would have a declaration from the Bureau laying out a two to four million acre foot cut. And that didn't happen. What we got was sort of an extension of the deadline to figure out a way to leave you know, this huge quantity of water in the system. But we have suffered, I would say, from a lack of leadership at that level, at that federal level, the agency that can sort of bang the heads of the uh, different water entitlement holders and water managers, and also was given the important tool of $4 billion to help make it happen. So you know, from my perspective, what will really help here is leadership from our Bureau of Reclamation to lay out a plan, make it happen. It must because the alternative is a catastrophic situation where we don't have water flowing down the Colorado River below Lake Mead. It must happen. Well, Sarah, on that note, we will leave things uh, where they are. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise and giving our listeners a sense of the stakes of this important issue. If people want to follow you on Twitter and, and find out what else you're making of all this, where can they find you? They can follow the Kyle Center for Water Policy at Morrison Institute at Kyle, K-Y-L, Center on Twitter. Very good. Thanks so much, Sarah. Thank you. That is it for today, Gaggle listeners. Thank you for submitting your questions about Arizona's water situation. And if you have more questions about Arizona's political landscape, be sure to let us know. Send us a message at thegaggle at arizonarepublic.com. That's one word, all spelled out. Or leave us a voicemail at 602-444-0804. If you want to see more of the Arizona Republic's water coverage, you can find it on azcentral.com and in the pages of the Arizona Republic. And don't forget to rate and review our show and share it with a friend. If you want to reach out to me on Twitter, I'm at Ronald J. Hansen, and that's H-A-N-S-E-N. Today's episode was edited and produced by Kaylee Monahan. You can follow her at Kaylee Monahan, K-A-E-L-Y-M-O-N-A-H-A-N. Thanks for listening to The Gaggle, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. We'll see you next week. Nearly 10 years ago, a fatal shooting across the border 
would upend life in twin border cities known collectively as Ambos Nogales, and left a lasting impact on a government agency that's had little oversight. A U.S. Border Patrol agent fired 16 shots in the span of 34 seconds. By the end, a boy lay dead on the Mexican side. If you were to draw a straight line from Mexico here, from Nogales, Sonora, down to Mexico where these uh, drugs are coming from, it's, it's the main quarter, it's the main highway. Tonight, a federal judge has ordered the name of a Border Patrol agent involved in a border killing to be released to the public. Prosecutors say it does not matter whether Rodriguez was smuggling, only whether his actions were enough of a threat to justify responding with deadly force. I'm Rafael Carranza. I write about immigration issues and have been covering the U.S.-Mexico borderlands for over a decade. Our team has been putting together this podcast for the past three years. On season three of Rediscovering, we'll take a closer look at the cross-border shooting of Jose Antonio Elena Rodriguez, a Mexican teenager killed through the border fence, and the aftermath of his death a decade later. It was originally thought that Jose Antonio Elena Rodriguez was just walking down the street, minding his own business, and he was shot. If you train agents that a rock is a deadly force instrument, then agents are trained to shoot and kill people throwing rocks at them. Rediscovering Killed Through the Border Fence, coming soon to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow AZC Podcasts on Twitter for more, and be sure to subscribe. Rediscovering, a podcast by the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com.